I got an update from Nintendo today telling me that they've updated their terms of service. And I, haven't, I don't remember when I created my Nintendo account, but it must have been about 15 years ago. Sure. And I was reminded unfairly of my username back in the day. Which oh, was no. <laughs> with what? two zeros. I just don't know what sort what? of child I must have been. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Nintendo, too. <laughs> Run around Mario Kart. I'm surprised they even allowed that. Yeah. Oh, my. How did you get... I mean, I guess I must have... That's probably why I did it, because I... He's found the loophole. Words. Found yeah. The loophole. That's horrendous. I was not can we have that as his lower all. third yeah, today? You can so call me as <laughs> now on in. The editor in chief. I'm not sure if we're recording. Is this what we're recording? Oh, amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> keep Cold this. Open. Keep this at the end. No. Why not? Why not? <laughs> okay, we'll just bleep it every it. time. Yeah. Okay, you can have it. Welcome to the TLDR Podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and I'm joined by Rory Taylor. Hello. And Zach Michaelis. Hello. How are you both doing? Very good, actually. I'm actually feeling great today. Really? Yeah, it was so rainy yesterday and now it's sunny. And yeah. I have the psychology as complex as a sunflower, so there you go. <laughs> you should um, watch the editorial and then this right back to back, because the editorial yeah. was recorded yesterday and see if you can spot the vibe, the vibe change. The big difference in energy. Yeah. I think mm. also I was pretty down... But what we're about to talk about, which is the Sunak speech, and that was yesterday, and that, yeah. that made me a bit sad. Yeah. And I'm sort of, I've recovered. A lot's happened in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I've sorry. lost my glasses, so I look weird. Massive drama. Massive drama. Huge news. Huge. I have to buy more glasses. That sucks. We should ask Rory, how are you doing? Because we oh, just talked to um, You weren't here yesterday, um, who cares? Yeah, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't lost anything. No. Feeling pretty good. Yeah. Got news to talk about, which is nice. Yes. Good. Um, yeah, so good. Okay, very nice. So in today's episode, we will be talking about some underreported stories brought to us by the team. And we will also be discussing the new net zero changes, revelations out of Rishi Sunak's speech yesterday in the UK. And then we'll be ending the episode, as always, by running through the political leader league table. Um, let's start with underreported stories, though. And let's start with yours, Zach. My underreported story is the news that what peace talks of in Yemen have concluded between the Houthi rebels and a sort of Saudi-led delegation. Mm -hmm. um, and both sides have said that they were constructive and that they are optimistic about some sort of negotiated settlement sometime soon, which is yeah. massive news because, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but the, the Yemen war has been going on for the best part of a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and I think tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. And, you know, it's a, like the humanitarian crisis there was enormous. Yeah. And it would be amazing to get some sort of peace deal. And I think it's nice because it's also part of this wider trend towards more sort of like cordial relations across the Middle East, mm -hmm. which is, which that's just great good news. Yeah, that's, really good news. Yeah. Rory? Uh, we don't do a good news section, do we? But We don't, but underreported yeah. good news counts. That's why we're sneaking it in. Is yours good news? Um, it's news. Okay. I think cool. it depends who you are. Sure. Um, so my news is from Chile, which um, is having a referendum in December on mm -hmm. a draft new constitution. Okay. Um, some new polling came out suggesting that uh, the country is going to would reject the new constitution, but this is interesting, at least to me, because this is now we're in the I think the third year of of this long process where they've been trying to come up with a new constitution. They had big protests in 2019 that led to the the party saying, "Fine, you, you know, we'll go through this process, mm -hmm. see what we can do." Um, so they held a referendum in 2020, yeah. where the people voted to say, yes, we do want to draft a new constitution. They then elected a constitutional convention mm -hmm. uh, the following year, which was full of left-wingers and independent people, kind of yeah. quite quite surprising. Um, they drafted a really, like, pretty progressive uh, draft. 
um, that was then subsequently rejected by the population. Yeah. Uh, so they thought, we'll have another go. We'll start the process again. We'll have a new constitutional convention. This time they elected quite a lot of right-wingers. Yeah. Um, and now the polling suggests that this one's oh, going to be rejected. No. So it's this bizarre situation where obviously people do want to change the constitution, yeah. which is, it's the one from 1980 that was introduced under Pinochet, who was the dictator at the mm -hmm. time. But they, there isn't much agreement on exactly what that constitution should look like. Yeah. So I don't know where they go from here. I think the president, um, Boric, has said he doesn't really want to try again. Okay. Um, because it's <laughs> I mean, just, we've all been there. Yeah. It's, he it's, has aged as well, that yeah. poor bloke. He, he was he's late 30s, I think. Yeah. Was he late? He's even younger than that. I think mid-30s, mid possibly, yeah, when um, he came into office. And he now, he's haggard. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? He, looks, he looks, you know, 39. Let's get a picture of him on screen. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, tough job, definitely. But, yeah. yeah I mean, so, agreeing a constitution... It's difficult. Yeah. yeah it Imagine if we had to do it. We couldn't handle like elements of a deal with one other well, one other block. Like we couldn't deal with the separation of Brexit, let alone yeah. the constitutional reform across the board on everything. We would kill each other. Yeah. We would. Well, we still sort of muddle through, don't we? At the moment, we still sort of have a constantly right changing constitution. Yeah, but if we had yeah. to, like, if everyone would sit down and be like, "Okay, lads, <laughs> yeah. what yeah. Are we doing?" Yeah, that would be the end of the UK. It's not very English, is it? No, we're definitely more muddler. Yeah. Than like actual do just, it. Just mess. That's too American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't want that. Don't want that efficiency. Anyway, um, speaking of the UK, there were major updates from Rishi Sunak yesterday in regard to the Conservative Party's net zero plans. Um, the UK has a legal commitment to reach net zero by 2050. And as part of that, the Conservatives had a number of policies and plans that were meant to help us get there, including reforms to the boilers that you're allowed to have in the UK, including banning the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030, and a number of other kind of policy measures to try and make that net zero goal possible. Yesterday, though, um, Rishi Sunak did a speech at number 10, announcing some changes, some steps back, I suppose, uh, rolling back some of those, um, those targets, some of those policy objectives, still claiming we're going to reach net zero by 2050, but changing the ways that he hopes to get there. Um, does one of you want to give us a rundown of exactly what, was, what happened and what was said, and then we can get into kind of the politics of it? Yeah, I don't mind. I think it's best that. if you do it because yeah. we talked about this yesterday in the discussion. I just end up ranting. So if you okay. could provide, <laughs> provide some structure to this discussion, okay. that would be great. So the headline announcement was yeah. that he would delay a ban on uh, sales of new petrol and diesel cars. Mm -hmm. The ban was currently going to come into place in 2030. He's delaying that until 2035. Okay. So pushing it five years Long back. time. Yeah. Um, That's 12 years. Five years. No, but like total 12 oh, years sorry. in the future. Sorry, yes. Like, yes. That's right. the same time distance as, like, David Cameron coming to power, basically. That's ages. Yeah. People have been driving around in petrol cars for so long. Yeah, it is ages, but I don't want to be defending Sunak here, but it is a massive change. I mean, it's an enormous change. Oh, of course. You know, moving away. I mean, obviously, it's only the sale of new cars, so you can still keep your old ones. Yeah, and buy secondhand as well. Oh, you can buy secondhand ones? Yeah. Okay, well, that actually isn't a massive change. Um, I was trying to provide some, some structure. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, already got right. sidetracked. So... Uh, pushing back the ban on petrol, new petrol and diesel cars, that's the main one. Mm -hmm. They've changed a lot of the rules around um, oil and gas boilers. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah, oil, oil and or gas boilers um, that households can have. Um, there was, it, it's, it, this is kind of a confusing one because with the, with the cars, there's like 
set years, whereas this kind of varies by household and whatever yeah. and type of building and what's appropriate. But effectively, they're delaying the phasing out of gas boilers mm-hmm. um, and also making it so that some households are exempt from ever having to have have ever having to switch from kind of fossil fuel boilers to like heat pumps or whatever sure. um, because he says there are some houses that it's just not appropriate for um those are the two big delays mm-hmm. and they're also scrapping plans to force landlords to upgrade the energy efficiency energy efficiency <laughs> of their homes yeah or, or of the homes they rent out um that's another big one um then there were some some of the less controversial ones things yeah. like um expanding the size of the um, boiler upgrade scheme mm-hmm. from 5,000 to 7,500 pounds, meaning if you do want to upgrade your boiler, you can get a, a cash grant from the government worth 7,500 pounds. Yeah. Um, and then also um, he uh, said they would kind of review the system, the kind of planning system for connecting new energy pro- projects to the national grid, which is quite a big, big deal. Okay. Um, and then I'm sure we'll get into this, but there was this weird thing about he ruled out stuff that kind of wasn't going to happen or wasn't like yeah. really coming down the line properly. So he was saying, we're not going to tax meat. We're not going to put more tax on flying. You won't have to use seven bins for recycling. Yeah. Um, I think there's some other things as well, but that was a kind of... Not going to be compulsory car sharing. Oh yeah, that was the other. That was yeah. the weirdest one. Yeah, we won't I don't force know. I you to share No taxes on meat or whatever. That's the weird, I don't know. Just how would that be enforced? So the compulsory car sharing is like a great idea. What well, the policeman would just like knock on your window and be like, do you live together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are the kind of big ones. Um, those are the actual announcements, but his whole, his whole thing was um, about public consent effectively mm-hmm. uh, for net zero. And he was saying... Um, we're doing all these plans, but actually, it's, it's he, according to him, it's costing people and uh, it shouldn't be costing people, so we're going to delay things and it's yeah. going to be great. We're still going to reach net zero. It's all fine, basically, is what he said. So, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's a summary of what he's saying. What are other people saying in response, both kind of politically and also kind of environmental experts? Um, so it's kind of a difficult one because a lot of the plans were leaked before the speech, so a lot of the responses were to the kind of leaks yes. versus his actual speech, although the main things like the delay on the ban of uh, petrol and diesel cars, that was all leaked. So it's kind of the same thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's quite a lot of discomfort from fairly high profile conservative MPs yeah. like Alok Sharma, Simon Clark, even Boris Johnson weighed mm-hmm. in. Um, they were saying, you know, we've been a leader on net zero. We shouldn't fall back. We shouldn't push these things back. Um, and saying, actually, not only is it kind of a, a moral question mm-hmm. about net zero, it's also. Uh, for, for business, they need certainty, and they've been planning for this net zero time. Uh, sorry, for this twenty thirty timeline. Yeah. Um, the car makers in particular, and now this they've kind of thrown them off and, and changed things, and that yeah. uncertainty is not good for business and investment. Um, Which is something the car manufacturers are in agreement on. Not all of them, at yeah, least. Yeah, most. Well, most of them are. I've seen more in agreement on that than than, than not in agreement. So, like Ford. Um, I think there's one called Stellantis, which mm-hmm. turns out makes loads of different cars. Yeah. Uh, Kia as well all saying those things. Um, I think Toyota and Jaguar Land Rover were actually the ones who said, actually, this is kind of a pragmatic approach. We're fine with the 2035 thing. I wonder if they were just less ready than the other ones. Yeah, the other maybe. ones had a bunch of batteries sat in the yeah. warehouse. Ready and to, those guys ready were like, to oh shit, out. we weren't ready yeah. anyway. Um, and then you've got the uh, Climate Change Committee, which yes. is the UK's uh, kind of independent advisory body on, mm-hmm. on net zero climate change issues, that type of thing. Effectively uh, saying Rishi Sunak is engaging in wishful thinking if he thinks that we can still reach that 2050 goal yeah. by delaying these measures. Um, 
And then obviously, you know, opposition parties condemning him for everything from bad business practice to bad environmental practice, all those things you might expect. Yeah. Um, but then equally, plenty of Conservative MPs very happy with this. Lots mm. of them had been calling for this type of thing. Yeah. Interestingly, Liz Truss actually literally like a day or two before had called this exact thing. Yeah. And now Labour are running these attack ads of, uh, you know, who's really running the government. And it's Rishi Sunak in Liz Truss's pocket. And yeah. Yeah. So I, I assume he'd been planning this speech since before she said that. But Probably. it does make her look like she's more of a it does. change maker than maybe she actually is. It makes her look superb. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Zach? So I don't really know where to start, but I think... I think the the main thing this the main reason this is this genuinely is really interesting and yeah. like, not even if you're just like a boring politics nerd like it is objectively really interesting because it is sort of a massive moment in British politics when net zero finally becomes politically contentious you know we have enjoyed quite a nice elite consensus on net zero unlike many other countries yeah. for a very very long time um, I think some part that's just luck like it's lucky that the, we got Boris Johnson mm -hmm. as the conservative leader instead of I don't know whoever else it could have been yeah and he is like a conspicuously pro-environmental conservative um but this is the moment I think when that that has started to break apart mm -hmm. um I think that was inevitable I, I do think that net zero politics was going to become contentious whatever happened um but it is still quite sad yeah or at least for those of us who are generally like pro net zero um I also think that the policies themselves, I don't, I think some of them, you, you, some of them are clearly bad policies if you want to get to net zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like uh, rolling back that stuff about making landlords upgrade their properties and like improving building regulations. That's, that, that should happen. We should have better insulated properties. Like the UK housing stock is crap. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, we get too cold when it's cold. We get too hot when it's hot. Like mm -hmm. it's just not, it's not a good thing. Um, some of the other ones that I think are, are quite interesting. I think, for example, uh, the increasing the grant for those mm. for the heat pumps. Yeah. Um, is it heat pumps? Yeah, it is heat pumps, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The, the heat pump grant is, is a good policy. And I think that's clearly informed by the German experience because the German politics at the moment is being sort of convulsed by this Green Party policy about making everyone have heat pumps and yeah. that lots of people are complaining about. Um, as are, I think, two other policies that I don't think really got much attention. He basically really strongly endorsed nuclear power. So mm -hmm. he's talking about increasing investment in nuclear power. Yeah. Um, and he also announced this thing called the Green Future Fellowship. Okay. And that's not like a big policy. It's probably not going to have like a massive impact on the aggregate. But it gives you a sense of the sort of way he wants to do net zero. Yeah. And the way he wants to do net zero is to to basically like technologize our way to net zero. Sure. Um, and he, in the speech, he also talked about how things have got way cheaper than we thought that we're going to, you know, we've made more progress than we expected to because stuff like solar has become, you know, it's gone down 95% since yeah. 2000 in terms of cost stuff like wind turbines are down whatever, 50%, like wind turbine energy at the moment is cheaper per kilowatt hour mm -hmm. than gas yeah. or coal or anything like that. Um, and I think this is the way he wants to sell himself is that he's not climate skeptic. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's not a sort of Greta Thunberg-esque sort of climate maniac and his way, I'm not endorsing that view, but I'm just saying like sure. that's how he wants to frame mm. it. Yeah. Um, and he basically wants to be this sort of techno-optimist middle ground. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I think that that is a position that a lot of politicians, mainstream politicians are going to revert to, um, to justify their pulling back from controversial net zero policies. Mm -hmm. I think as especially you see this in Europe, you know, as, as sort of mainstream politicians come under pressure from normally like the right yeah. um, to row back on their net zero politics because they're mm -hmm. considered too expensive by some fractional population. 
they have to find this new ground where they can they can sort of appease both sides and be like, no, we still take net zero seriously, but we also are sensitive to the cost concerns. Yeah. And I feel like this techno-optimist way is this, it's this perfect way out because you get to say like, no, we are going to make it, but we're doing it clever, you mm-hmm. know? And fine, it might be true. You know, we if it might be that we, you know, this Green Future Fellowship helps us figure out fission and we end up with abundant, endless energy in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. But it's just a very risky strategy. Yeah. Um, not politically. I think it's a good strategy politically in some sense. But for the planet yeah. and for the country, it is risky yeah. to just bet all your money on, you know, sort of this like vague techno-optimism. And there are sort of two schools of thought here. I think basically... Some people are persuaded by this technologism. You know, you look at graphs of like the cost of solar, you look at yeah. graphs of the cost of wind, you go, like, oh, that continues, baby. Or the cost of batteries, for example, they're also going down quite steeply. Yeah. Um, and you go, wow, this is going to be easy. You know, in mm. 10 years' time, things going to be piss cheap. We're mm-hmm. just going just gonna to plonk a whole load of solar panels on the ground and be fine. Um, and then there's what I am persuaded by is the, is the more sort of like sober, um, historically informed take, which is that actually lots of these things are slightly faddish mm. in a way and that really a lot of these things you, you what looks like exponential decreases in price are actually what you might describe so Vaclav Smil is like the author on this what you might describe as logistic curves so what that happens is you get these very steep decreases in price but then things tail off quite quickly and more suddenly than you think you know solar is a good example of this mm. solar panels are already stabilizing at price and they've actually gone up recently because of the cost of inflation and materials and that sort of thing um, and so what I think a lot of technologists, the mistake they make is to look at steep decreases in price and assume that those things will continue forever when actually they're usually a function of very specific innovations yeah. that have sort of like half-lives, economic half-lives. And once the economic gain of that innovation tapers off, all of a sudden you either get the same, co- you know, the cost stabilizes or yeah. it might go up because the whole world is racing to make the green transition. The demand for solar panels and wind turbines and the stuff that makes those things like steel and copper and lithium and all that sort of thing is skyrocketing. And mm-hmm. so that just, unless we find new supply, those things will get more expensive. So I, my, I think it's too complicated to explain in like a podcast, but I, I do think that the, the techno-optimist take is sometimes a little bit blind to the sort of like material realities mm-hmm. uh, of all this. And I think that you can look, we, we've done the easy bit so far, basically. And you can look at how well we've done with these bit. Like we've electrified the grid, you know, you know we've replaced all the coal power stations with wind turbines and think yeah. that everything's going to be that easy. But I think the consensus amongst the best verse people around is that actually the next bit's really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and the technologists might be right if we make some massive strides in innovation, but without those strides, you know, things are going to get really difficult. Yeah. So I, I just think that that's, that's clearly the vibe he's going for. I understand the politics of that. Uh, I think it's a massive bet for yeah. the country. And I think that actually it's techno-optimism can be a bit misplaced and a bit over-optimistic. I think one of the things that really frustrated me about his speech was um, the, the thing he said about how actually we over-delivered so far on our mm-hmm. emissions cuts. And then I think the quote was, that means it now provides space to take a more pragmatic, proportionate, and realistic approach to reaching net zero. Yeah. And it's like this thing where, yeah, that's great that we've been cutting emissions faster than maybe we planned to, but that doesn't mean that you can then like just slack off until 2050 because yeah. you know you're going to reach it. Like if we can reach net zero before 2050, that's great. better. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be just as long as it's by 2050, which is questionable as well, like whether yeah. we actually will or whether the target. world will. Like that, I, I just don't know how anyone can buy into that argument that it's the prime time just to kind of take yeah. a step back. Um, I literally have a list in front of me that I wrote of things that annoyed me about Sunak's speech. Go on. Um, the other one, Zach touched on it, the uh, thing about um, 
scrapping the rule the rule on making landlords upgrade mm -hmm. the, the property um the energy efficiency of their property yeah that that one he was talking about the cost of net zero policies on working people but that one is is a complete reverse of that he's basically True. saying to landlords you don't need to spend money on your home and the people that suffer from that are the tenants who pay are paying more, more yeah. in their bills because they're losing heat out the windows and walls mm -hmm. and i don't understand how that can fit into his whole thing about yeah. it being about working people true um yeah, yeah. I was just because on that, I think I think there's, there's genuinely such a like interesting and like deeply philosophical question here, which is that it's a fact that we have outperformed our targets and we mm. are doing better than most countries. You know, if you look at basically um, per capita CO two emissions since like the peak in 1990, the UK is down like 40 percent. You know, mm -hmm. the average in the G seven is something like 10, 8, 10 percent, something like that. We're doing really well. Yeah. But what is the like? What's the correct inference from that? Like, what are the policy implications from that? Is the correct inference that we should therefore slack off? You know, yeah. um, we've done it. Well, let's just chill out, guys. Wait for everyone else to catch up. Yeah. To me, no, because a as I mentioned, we've done the easy bit first, yeah, mm -hmm. and also we haven't done it yet. We're not at net zero. Yeah. It's not yeah. like we have time to slack off. If we if we want to make our own targets, we still have to keep going at this rate, probably faster. And the other thing is, when we say we've done better than everyone else. That does imply that everyone else has done worse, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, what is the implication there? Like, should we? Should well, to my mind, yeah. The implication there is we need to do more to help other people. Yeah. You know, my, to my mind, the implication there is that the developed world, and this might be politically contentious for really obvious reasons, but the developed world needs to do more to help poorer countries make the energy transition. You know, yeah. the idea that we're going to be oh, let's let's do cars by twenty thirty five, yeah. And then at the same time, we we expect let's just say like sub-Saharan Africa. To yeah. make the energy transition by 2100, whatever the goal is on the IPCC or IEA thing, like that, that's just that's just politically unfair. It's just infeasible. Mm, yeah. It's not palatable. Um, palatable is even too weak a word. Like it's just madness, basically. Mm. And so, to my mind, the correct policy implication from that is that we've done very well so far. We need to keep doing as well as we're doing if we want to make our own targets. And also, we need to make sure we help other countries do that. And some yeah. of this stuff might implicitly accidentally help other countries you know like investing in technology is a great idea if we solve fission we help the world yeah but a soon didn't frame it like that and b there are other more direct things that we should be doing then you know like if the the, the sort of aggregate the, the the amount of co2 you could take out the the world the atmosphere yeah um by investing you know just going back to our normal foreign aid budget of 0.7 percent of gdp for example you know massive it's it's we could do more than that, that would be the most effective way for us to tackle the climate crisis is to basically increase aid to other countries. And again, like it's politically contentious for a whole load of reasons, but I do think that is the correct inference from the fact that we are doing better than other countries. Yeah. It means we have a bit more slack. We should be helping other people because we're, we're already struggling to make our targets. They're really struggling. Mm. We need to help them I th you know, hurry up. I think up. Alok Sharma responded to it. He's at the G20, uh, not G20, he's at the um, UN. UN General Assembly mm. in New York at the moment. And he said that the kind of immediate reaction was worry that, other countries will see the UK doing this and think, well, yeah, maybe we can get away with it. Mm. And we Which talked is about this. Bad. Yeah, sorry, we yeah. talked about. I shouldn't. Sorry, we talked about this a couple of podcasts. No, 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 yeah. it is bad. Um, but we talked about this a couple of podcasts yeah. ago, and I was basically. I always think that there are two ways that you should evaluate climate policies. Yeah, one is literally how much CO two or CO two equivalent does it take out the atmosphere per pound or per dollar or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the CO two emission equivalent per penny? Yeah. yeah. And that's quite that's an important way of looking at policies, and it does rule out certain policies. So, like, I mean, ULES is obviously framed as, for example, it's framed as a like air quality thing, mm. yeah. and that's a separate justification. But like, if you can, if you look at it as a green policy, which it sort of implicitly is, yeah. 
then ULEDs doesn't really meet that criteria because it is quite expensive from the government's perspective as well. Mm -hmm. There's a scrappage scheme. And it doesn't make much of a difference to CO2 in the aggregate. You know, we would be, there are probably more efficient policies that would take out more CO2 for less money, which we yeah. should be pursuing first. Not that we should rule out ULEDs, but we should be pursuing those first, yeah? But then you also have to think about how it affects the sort of like the political momentum towards net zero, you know? Mm -hmm. And I use this analogy last time, but you're, you're sort of teetering on a precipice here. And you, if, if people like us start going like, oh, we are going to take this seriously, we are going to do that, you push the political momentum one way and you encourage other countries. And then other countries, when they say, oh, we're not doing this, they're under this immense sort of international pressure to step up their game because everyone else is doing it. Yeah. At least the wealthy countries are doing it. But if you're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and you go like, mm, I don't really feel like <laughs> it, you make a massive push in the other direction. You yeah. start deterring climate action, especially in poorer countries. You go like, why are we going to bother? Yeah. And But also from your peers, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, you sort of inspire, like, the Germans go, oh, you know, the, the Brits aren't are cooling off on it. We can do a bit more coal or something like that. Yeah. And you end up with this horrible sort of finger-pointing game where you're racing to the bottom mm -hmm. and there's no longer any sort of, like, internationalised political pressure for people to make the green transition. Uh, and so that's what I think we're worried about. I think that maybe you can justify some of these policies on the first measure in that... Sunak is rowing back on policies that maybe he thinks are not properly costed mm -hmm. in terms of CO2 emissions. But in terms of like the politics and the political momentum, you yeah. can't justify this sort of speech, this sort of vibes. Mm -hmm. yes. You have to keep giving net pro net zero vibes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my, it, that's my take on it. It's weird because he, he was framing what he was saying as that he is worried about the us lo losing momentum to net zero because of kind of public consent for it being undermined. Yeah. And... So his logic was that these measures, this is going to keep the public support of net mm -hmm. zero. But actually, the way he did it, I think, un is undermining net zero, yeah. ceding ground to the kind of anti-net zero people himself. Like, if he'd have gone out and made a speech explaining why net zero, net zero is important, yeah. saying this is why we've got this ban on diesel petrol cars coming in. Also, we're going to increase the grant for replacing a boiler. We're going to invest in electric charging infrastructure across the, the road network. Like, that would have been kind of reinforcing net yeah. zero, not kind of saying... I'm worried about it, so let's just let's scale mm. back a bit. Public consent is an interesting one too. It's like really important for a, a like a whole kind of bunch of reasons, especially when you're making a huge change like this that impacts yeah. almost every level of kind of politics. And it's an interesting one too because I feel like conversations regularly arise around like net zero referendums and does do the people actually yeah. want it and stuff like that. And I find it's fascinating that that is so regularly associated with environmental policies in a way that it's not for other things. Mm. That a lot of these kind of ideas and policies were endorsed at the last general election by the public. The Conservatives 2019 manifesto was actually much greener than I imagine most people would guess it was. Mm. So it's not that this is totally new policy that's never been approved by the public. Yeah. Maybe some of the individual ideas weren't, but like that's how governance yeah. works and i always find it really interesting that this is one way you're like no 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 we didn't say you know sign off on this you can't do this but like any other area of policy you just let yeah. it slide if it's an environment if it's an environmental change it gets all this scrutiny if it's something to do with education or health or whatever they're the government they can do yeah. that whereas this is like oh we need a referendum to decide if we even want to do it it's like why yeah. to be fair i think some so i think some of that so I think at the moment, the calls for climate referendum are just motivated by sort of political opportunists like Nigel Farage, mm -hmm. who see a big issue coming down the track and like, oh, let's get on this. I can do yeah. another UKIP style thing, which is just cheap. Yeah? Sure. But 
I think that they're right about something, which is that people, and I do think this is true, and I think this is really difficult, people have tacitly signed up to a massive, enormous transformation yeah. of, the, of society and the way we live. Like, I, I really don't think it is hyperbole to describe it in those terms. Mm. You know, the climate transition is not just like, oh, let's all sign up to octopus energy and we'll be fine. <laughs> like, it is, it's fucking massive. It's enormous. Yeah. Um, and people have signed up to it with a whole load of quite flippy floppy targets about like, oh, net zero by 2050, and it yeah. sounds great, and la da da without really, without actually the politicians educating them on what that actually implies, like yeah. what that actually means. And so I do think that there will be this sort of like democratic tension, which I think you're already seeing sort of resolving because Sunak's stepping back from it, so which means that the Conservative sure. Manifesto won't be that pro net zero mm-hmm. next time. But you, you, would, you would get this democratic tension where people all of a sudden go like, oh, wait a second, you didn't really tell me that. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like you said net zero, and now you're making me buy like a Tesla for 40 grand or whatever. That doesn't really feel fair, mate. You didn't tell me that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I do think that's why there's this sort of like de- democratic issue here. Mm. Um, I think, that, by the way, partly because politicians didn't know how hard it would be. Sure. Um, but the other thing is that on the public consent thing, I think that's, it's, it's, I was, we had an argument on Slack because uh, we were watching the speech together. And mm. when he started talking about that, I got really excited. Yeah. Mm. Because I thought this was going to be sort of laying the groundwork for some more radical, very fucking naive of me in retrospect. Sure. But I thought maybe it's going to be laying the groundwork for some more, you know, uh, more radical policies. Yeah. Um, and that is not, obviously isn't what happened. But the, I think when you, 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 you're going to, you're going to, basically it's true that you have to maintain public consent and that will be difficult to make yeah. the climate transition. But the the reaction to that, like the correct inference from that is not Sunak's, which is, okay, we just have to do half-assed measures. The, the actual, the polling suggests that the correct reaction to that is if you're going to make the energy transition and you're going to implement the policies that are sufficiently radical to make it, it has to be accompanied with a redistribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the polling always bears this out. So like the Gilets jaunes protest is a really good example. And I keep on going back to it because it's like the sort of environmental bogeyman in EU. I'm getting excited. <laughs> in EU green transition politics. But we people polled those protesters and they asked them, so what don't you like? Is it this whole gasoline tax thing that you don't like? And they were like, no, no, that's not the issue. The issue is the distributional element to it. Yeah. Because Net zero policies are naturally regressive, yeah, mm. because poor people use spend more money as a proportion of their income on energy, yeah? yeah. So when you make energy more expensive and oil and gas more expensive, that naturally hurts poor people more. So to make it politically palatable, you not only have to sort of like uh, normalize that, you also have to go further. You have to make it progressive. You have to make it that the cost of the energy transition fall on the, you know, the shoulders of the richest, yeah. yeah? And I think what the energy transition sort of does is it forces us to recognise a fact in politics that we spend too long ignoring, which is that society is just more unequal than we would like it to be. Mm. And the public tolerates that during the good times, during the boom times, when you feel like things are getting better and you don't really mind that, you know, Dave down the road is a little bit richer than you. Mm. But when things start getting worse or when there are squeezes on your living standards, that fact becomes deeply unpalatable. And the politicians are going to be forced to reckon with it. Um, and so I think the correct inference from this is that if you are going to make the green transition, it has to be accompanied. It has to be accompanied by some sort of redistribution. Mm. Um, so I, and I think the last thing I'll say is that what made me so depressed about this is when I heard that speech, the start mm. of that speech, mm. it has, and this is a reference that no one's going to fucking get, but it has massive echoes of Jimmy Carter's 1977 speech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Obviously. Yeah, well, you're all thinking it. Yeah. You're all <laughs> thinking <laughs> Jimmy Carter's 1970s speech is he comes in during an energy, tra- energy crisis, mm. yeah, and he's obsessed with energy security and energy independence uh, from the American spe- perspective. Um, and he 
you know, he's in the White House and he, he's wearing literally a cardigan and mm. he's turned the heating down. He turns the lights off at night um, and he gives a speech to the American people where he says, you know, uh, we're going to, if we're going to make the, we're going to basically solve our energy shortage. It's not framed as an explicitly environmental terms at that point in time, but it's, it's about energy. It's about energy shortage. It's going to require mutual sacrifice. I can't remember the exact word is, but then he says, but I think that the American people know that if we're going to make it, it will require cooperation. And I yeah. think we accept that. He was voted out of office three years later. Um, <laughs> but the fact that a politician could make that argument in mm. the 70s and yet, what, 40, 50 years yeah. later, nearly 50 years yeah. later, fucking wild, politicians are still scared to make that argument. Mm. That's astonishing. That's yeah. just mind-blowingly shit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, is it not it mind-blowingly yeah. shit? Yeah, and the fact that Jimmy Carter had more balls in the 70s to do it than we do 50 years later, you know, an aggregate of one degree warmer. Yeah. That just, that blows my mind. It, sorry, that, and that, wow. I just, and that just made no, no, me no. a little bit sad. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the really interesting things about, about the whole energy crisis is the lack of political confidence and the lack of ideas. Mm. Um, and I think that it's, it's I don't, obviously I'm not old enough to really know this, but I don't think that we've been a time of such political hopelessness in a really long time. You know, mm. I think in the 70s, what's interesting is you go back and you read about the 70s. 70s, they're facing an energy crisis. You know, there is the cold peak of the Cold War. Everything's very fucking crazy. It's, it's, it's pretty tense. But there's also immense political excitement. There's a lot of ideas. You know, environmentalism is a new idea. You know, yeah. you're getting the, even on the right, you're getting the sort of beginnings of Thatcher. Mm -hmm. You know, this, Thatcher comes in 79. Yeah, you're getting that sort of like Reagan-y, uh, pro-free market neoliberal thing and that, that and you'd have to agree with that idea but the point is that was an idea it was like yeah. a solution and you compare it to now when the crisis is even more acute and what are the ideas yeah you know like fucking i mean starmer to his credit you know he's he's, he's trying but the ideas are what like uh technology yeah that's that's he's getting blair in to rehash mm. old blair ideas and it's the same manifesto as nine inside seven it's it's technology better regulation mm -hmm. you know um um, it's just quite sad to see that we're so ideologically stuck in yeah. such time of acute crisis. I've done another rant, but you know what I mean. No, I'm interested um, to kind of close this segment on, you mentioned Labour's approach, which obviously part of this from from um, Sunak is about drawing a distinction between mm. what the Conservatives, he wants the Conservatives to stand for, and what Labour stand for when it comes to net zero and environmentalism. They've seen this strategy work in Uxbridge at the by-election, or at least that's their perception of why they won. Um, and they're hoping they can replicate this at the general election by saying, well, sure, we're still green enough that we're not going to turn everyone off. But equally, if you're worried about it, we're not going to do anything too yeah. crazy. We're not going to make you pay too hard. What do you think of Labour's reaction to that thus far? What do you think their reaction will be? And do you think this is a strategy we're going to continue seeing play out over the next year as we had in the election? Or do you think it's not going to work well enough that that happens? I think, I mean, Labour's immediate response, they, they have said they will reinstate the 2030 ban on pet, new petrol and diesel cars if they win. On the boiler thing, they haven't really said anything mm -hmm. because I think they just want to come up with their own approach to that. Sure. Um, so that, assuming they win, that's, that's yeah. what's going to happen. But I think based on our experience with Starmer as leader for mm -hmm. the last three years or so, I assume he's going to be cautious on this sure um i think if you had if he gave full control of the party to ed Miliband, who's the shadow climate and net zero secretary or something yeah. um he would he would really go hard championing green policies not just for 
saving the environment, but mm-hmm. because he like he's made, already making the argument saying they're cost effective, they're good for business, yeah. they're good for people, all that type of thing. But I think they, I think Starmer's leadership will kind of withhold that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think they don't want to be drawn into this fight over uh, over net zero. Um, but I also think equally that the Conservatives have kind of learned the wrong lesson from mm. Uxbridge. They think of it that they won by uh, kind of fighting over ULES. Yeah. But I think they forget the fact that they lost a majority, a huge majority yeah. down to like less than 500 votes. Um, actually, not not the biggest majority, but like 7,000 yeah, yeah, majority yeah. down to like 495, I think. Um, so I think they forget the fact that they lost a lot of support there mm-hmm. just because they won by a slim margin. But equally, I think Labour, I think Labour learned the wrong lesson from that and that they're too worried about yeah. kind of the environmental stuff when if they actually just were on the front foot defending these policies, then they yeah. could do better. But um, yeah, I... I think Labour understand will kind of try and avoid getting drawn into it too much. What's your perception, Zach? Yeah, yeah. so I think what's interesting is that Starmer did say the things you did say, but the way he justified that is framing it as a business thing. So he yeah. was saying yes. the reason we're not doing this is because we want to provide businesses with certainty. Mm-hmm. So I think he's wary of falling in. He knows the game that Sunak's trying to play, which is this like... Um, you know, paint them as like pro just up, oil. you know, Labour's mm. just up oil and yeah. I am the moderate looking out for the working class man in the white van or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, on the, and I also agree with Rory, I think that the Conservatives are massively over-inferred from ULES, but not just for the reason that Rory mentioned, but I also think what's really interesting is that ULES worked as a wedge issue because it was about to happen, it was real, yeah, yeah. to voters. Net, backing down from net zero is not the same thing, yeah. because even if certain net zero policies are not popular, hypothetical net zero policies, like seven bins or whatever banning Sunak was meat. talking about, banning meat, yeah, they were never felt they were not going to happen so that no. they, you don't gain any political capital from saying oh we're not going to do this you know the the ULES thing you gain political capital because you're going to stop something that everyone is really genuinely worried about yeah. but if you you know a year and a half out before an election say well, we're not doing any of these controversial green policies and then you get to the election and you go like remember those things that we could have done ages ago we didn't do <laughs> aren't you happy yeah. people are going to go like well I don't care mm. so I just, that's one of the things I think about the net zero thing is I think that polling can be deceptive for politicians because they see polling about certain policies yeah. Yeah. it is true actually by the way that for example the vast majority of Tory voters don't want to ban on cars mm-hmm. but I don't know if you can sort of get the same amount of political capital out of attacking those issues as you could with ULEDs because it was so real and so immediate in yeah. a way um, the other thing that I think is that the uh, the, whether basically whether or not they can use it as a wedge sorry this is not really another thing but basically I don't think they'll be able to use it as a wedge issue is yeah. what I'm getting at here um, and I think they're going to try and use it as a wedge issue with Labour but I think there, there's a big risk for Sunak in that if Labour doesn't take the bait and I don't think they will then you end up just looking sort of like net zero sceptic mm-hmm. which is not which is not a good look the, yeah. the last thing I'll say is that I think there's something deeply political toxic about the Conservatives ditching young people as aggressively as they are mm. um, and I think that makes electoral sense in the short term because of sunk cost. The young people don't vote Tory. You know, yeah. I think the latest um, Redfield and Wilder polling says it's something like 5% of 18 wow. to 24-year-olds voting Tory. Young people don't vote Tory, so it's fine. You can nail them a bit more. But I think in the long term, that's a genuine massive electoral risk. You know, We're already seeing that polling that suggests that people don't get more right-wing yeah. as they get older. But for, I think, these reasons, it's fundamentally the Tories have ditched young people for a bit. Yeah. But... A, there's something deeply politically toxic about that. Like, it just adds a nastiness to politics yeah. that, that there shouldn't really be. To, to fight politics along such stark demographic and generational lines is just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that in the long term, it's a massive political risk because it's just not politically sustainable for a party. I mean, obviously, the UK is an aging population, but it's still not fundamentally not politically sustainable for a party to just ignore such a large and growing section of the electorate. You know, yeah. as young people come of voting age. 
none of them are going to vote Tory if they keep going down this line. And that, that will just be more of a problem and whether or not they can recover that image in the future when they need to for electoral reasons because all their voters are dead. Yeah. You know, that, that's an open question. Interesting. Yeah. So many ramifications. Yeah. Green politics level. is so, it's impossibly yeah. it's interesting. Like this all came out of like a really hastily put together speech that yeah. wasn't meant to happen for a few weeks. And we've been talking about it for longer than the speech was probably at this point. Yeah, almost definitely. Yeah. Um, with that noted, let's move to the next section of the podcast. Do we have predictions today? Uh, oh, do we have any predictions? Should, should no, we? Uh, no, I don't have okay, any. Okay, well, uh, I'll say the same thing again, but I'll move <laughs> do on. Do a massive prediction about whether or not we're going to make the energy transition. And what, for 2050? Yeah, we'll, yeah, 2100, yeah. When, <laughs> when will the planet collapse? Mm, <laughs> 20, between 2100. I'm going to call you out on this, though. So maybe, maybe you get it right. <laughs> I do think we'll make it. Well, how old are you? What year were you born, sorry? 1998, so I'll be 102. Possible. I'll be a at 102. I, I won't be there, but you might be. I might be there. Um, I reckon we'll make it. That's your prediction. We'll make yeah. it. Yeah, I think it'll be very miserable in the meantime, but we'll I'm make it. I'm taking the other side of that bet. We're not making it. <laughs> but what does what not make it mean? Do you think we're just going to burn and die? No, I just think you think we'll have successfully made the transition. We'll be net zero or whatever. Is that the prediction? What's your prediction yeah, exactly? What is the precise prediction here? Should we just leave it? Should we just leave it? Let's just leave it. <laughs> We're not going to be here anyway. I'm basically mildly optimistic. Not quite soon. I'm yeah. optimistic, but I'm mildly optimistic. You're having a kid. You've got to be. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, next, let's move to our political leader league table where we're going to move up and down the winners and losers in politics this week. Bored. Hey. Wow. Um, unbelievable. <laughs> wow. That's going to look horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so welcome to the part of the podcast which is impossible for audio listeners, yeah. apologies in advance. Um, let's run through our winners of the week who are either going to shuffle up on the board or add to the bottom of the winning section. So let's start with you, Rory. Who's your winner of the My week? My winner? Um, I think it's the first time we're moving someone up from the slightly good category to the actually good actually category. Good category. Okay, so one I'm of gonna, these five. Yeah, I'm going to move up US President Joe Biden. Okay. Um, wow. There... I mean, there's a lot happens in US politics, obviously, but I've gone for a kind of global reason. Okay. Um, and it's kind of at the expense of Xi Jinping, at the expense of China. Uh, sorry, not Xi Jinping, at the expense of Putin. So I feel like I could have moved Putin down, but I've moved Putin too much recently. Yeah. Basically, and you're uh, like moving Putin up yeah. anyway, so. <laughs> at the uh, UN General Assembly, um, or the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, Biden met with the a group of countries called the C5, which are the kind of Central Asian mm -hmm. um, ex-Soviet countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Very well done. Thank you. Um, and he uh, basically, they had a big, it's the first ever kind of summit of those leaders and mm -hmm. the US leader. Um, and these are countries that are very much previously in Russia's orbit. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Biden is clearly trying to make inroads there um, based on cooperation over things like security, um, trade investment connectivity and all those types of things. I sure. think they said, the press release said, um, while Putin's preoccupied in Ukraine and worried about losing kind of partners in that region, mm. Biden's swooping in there. Amazing. I think that's, genuine, that's a very, very interesting story. Uh, but I, I think there's something really odd about the amount of political attention that's being played to Eurasia at the moment. Mm. I don't mm. want to diss like five countries in one go, but like <laughs> the, there's a sort of like three-way race for Eurasia. I mean, the Chinese have been sort of stepping in there as well. Their yeah. main sort of form is this thing called the Shanghai Five. Um, and they've sort of been filling Russia's place for probably the best part of like five years now, mm. just because China has greater economic weight. And then you're right, Biden's now playing into it as well. Mm. But 
if you, you know, there's a great book about this called Sinostan. The Chinese influence in Central Asia is basically accidental. They don't really have any like actual policies. It's just more like they don't have any, you know, the Russians don't really have a functioning economy. Yeah. So like they, they sort of just go like, China, you want to help out? And they're like, yeah, yeah why not? Um, and I just didn't really see what the strategic advantage for the US it's like the equivalent of like a fad. It's like a political fad. <laughs> I guess. Eurasia. Yeah, I guess there's, there's probably, you know, pipelines and resources and things. Yeah, so like also, there's some oil and then there's uranium in Kazakhstan, yeah, obviously. But I think it's probably more just about picking off those friends of Russia and, and yeah. taking their diplomatic support away, I guess. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Is that who's your winner of the week? My winner of the week is Starmer. Oh, another Whoa. person moving up into Yeah, it is Starmer. Why is Starmer a winner of the week? Starmer is on a week for a couple of reasons. First, I think we've started seeing some actual Starmer policies. Mm -hmm. So I think that most obvious one, by the way, was the EU migration thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, which was, what was it? You wanted to make a deal with Europe uh, about, about migration to sort of stem mm -hmm. the, the, the stream of boats crossing the channel. And maybe some sort of resettlement scheme wasn't there, something like that. Yeah. Um, and then he also talked a little bit more about what he would do with the Brexit deal. Mm -hmm. um, and... Starmer has been very risk-averse so far, but this actually seems to have worked for him. And the polling from the last couple of days is really great for Labour. Okay. It does seem like they've actually increased their lead by a couple of points. Mm -hmm. And the head-to-head -head polling on Sunak and Starmer is pretty filthy at the moment. Yeah. Starmer is knocking them out of the park. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's why I think it's a good week for Starmer. I also think Starmer is going to play the net zero thing pretty well. And mm -hmm. I, I think the fact that he's pro the policies themselves, but he's found quite a nice middle ground justification for that position, yeah. bodes really well for him. And if he can tow that line, he'll be able to keep all of us sort of pro-climate lefties on side, while at the same time maintaining the allegiance of that like more centrist middle of the road voter that might be a bit wary of some of the like anti-car policies. Sure. Um, I'm doing one this week. Wow. Um, because Ben's not here and I want to. Those are my reasons. Um, so, as Zach was saying earlier, we live in a kind of hopeless time at the moment. There's not much um, optimism. There's not much ambition. There's not enough friendship. And I don't think there's anything more beautiful than making friends. And one man has been making friends this week, and that's King Charles. Wow. He's made friends with Macron this week. And for me, <laughs> that is a win. He's having a lovely time. Yeah. Macron is tweeting so much praise about him. Mm. It's like... I mean, as I'd say, it's like he's met someone really famous, but I guess he has, so <laughs> yeah. whatever. But Macron is absolutely buzzing to have met the king. They're having a lovely time. The French love the king, which feels like a bit of a shock from the French. I think it's a win for the king. No, jokes yeah. aside, I think that actually, if you look back, so look at the polling today, so it's been a year basically since the coronation, mm. look at some of the polling, the, the king is popular. Yeah. And that's, I think, if you thought back to the coronation, He's a bit of a goon. You probably would have thought, oh, this could be... I mean, people talk about the end of the royal yeah, family. Sure. Yeah. And that's not... That's just silly talk now. Yeah. Like, he's done very well, I think. Um, and I think he's made some politically savvy decisions. I think, you know, flaunting the environmentalism, for example, mm -hmm. that's a clever move. He's getting ahead of the ball. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think the king definitely deserves to be up there. I think yeah. he's done very well. He's also very popular in Germany. I don't know if you saw his visit a couple yes, of months ago. Yes, he's having a great time. They love him. Yeah. He's, he's he a speaks popular a, guy. You know, he goes and speaks in German, speaks in French, and... They He's been doing his Duolingo. Yeah. The bird should also yeah. be on there as a winner this week. You are right. It's weird how, well, not weird, but like it really felt like there was a real feeling that when Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth dies, mm -hmm. surely that's the end of the monarchy. You know? Yeah. But, and here we are. Yeah. 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 I think like the Queen was popular. Like, she was just an objectively popular figure. But I think people thought that was a special thing for her. Mm. I think the monarchy is just kind of popular. 
I think it's like when you see them more, when you, they're put in, they give them more attention. I mean, not everyone. There's, I'm sure there's monarchs you could choose who wouldn't. Yeah, King but Andrew. I think generally, not be well. the more attention you get, the more you're on stamps and shit. People are like, oh, yeah, it's just yeah. that old boy. But I also think he's done well. He's done well too. He's not I, just on stamps. Yeah, I don't but. think it is just the stamps thing. I think there was a genuine, like, unless this guy is good, he's not going to last. Yeah. Or at least, like, his influence is going to wane. But I don't think that's true. I also think he's been helped by the fact that we have a political vacuum. Yes. And that no big leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, harder for him to make his mark and look popular and like Tony Blair but we all needed a bit of a yeah. stability so it's true believe he's, he's done a good job in contrast Rory who is your loser of the week my loser of the week um, it's kind of a more serious one because oh, it no. involves a war mine is the um, Prime Minister of um, Armenia Nicole Pashinyan he's lost I know yeah. this is the thing like coming off the back of yeah, King Charles sorry. being friends with um, Macron it a few feels ops. yeah feels pretty bleak um, we've covered this in many videos across mm. our channels, um, this effectively 24-hour war uh, where Azerbaijan attacked Nagorno-Karabakh, which is... Eth- I don't need to go into it. Watch sure. the videos. Yeah. Um, basically, Prime Minister... I love that plug. No <laughs> yeah. specific video. Just watch the videos. Search TLDR Armenia or Azerbaijan <laughs> or something. Um, basically, the Prime Minister of Armenia, um, he is under pressure now. There's protests calling for his resignation, mm. effectively because these protesters feel that he didn't sufficiently defend the Armenians in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah. Um, and it's also difficult for him because Russia was traditionally Armenia's security guarantor, mm-hmm. but kind of they've fallen out a bit now. He's yeah. kind of leaning more towards the West, but the presence of Russian peacekeepers still meant they were essential. Yeah. And then this ceasefire that got brokered was brokered, I think, by Russia between the yeah. local Armenian groups in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan um, without Armenia. So he kind of got you know, mm. wasn't involved in that. And now he's, uh, yeah, under a lot of pressure not from great, multiple sides. Not a great week. No. Not at no. all. Um, Zach, who's your loser of the week? My loser of the week, and this doesn't say anything about my political affiliations, is Zelensky. Okay. Ah. Um, and I think Zelensky is a loser of the week for a couple of reasons. Loser of the last two weeks, that's the last time we did a podcast. Mm. I think the main reason, unfortunately, there has to be the spat with Poland. Yeah, over grain and the fact that the Polish Prime Minister has announced that they're no longer supporting Ukraine militarily. A little bit of context, this is just because, you know, basically the EU said that Ukraine could export as extra grain through Europe and then partly because the Ukrainian currency is very, very cheap at the moment and also because Ukraine just produces loads of grain. Yeah. That flooded the market, especially in Central and Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. and Central and Eastern European farmers got very, very grumpy about it and then obviously their governments because that's a very important political constituency, especially in Poland, where there's an election coming up and the ruling Law and Justice Party is especially powerful in the sort of rural East. Um, They'd be like, oh, no, we don't want to do this. We're going to to put a ban on the grain. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reason I think this is interesting is because I think you... This is... Again, I'm not, like, trying to uh, endorse anything here. I'm not, Mm -hmm. like, saying it's right or wrong. But I think Ukraine's quite hawkish language has backfired on a couple of occasions recently. And... I think you saw this here. So Zelensky basically accused Poland of like setting the stage for a Moscow actor. I think that was the mm, turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, and the the po the, po- the Polish government is is quite hawkish and, and it's quite uh, it's quite defensive in yeah. lots of ways. Um, and so when they hear that direct criticism, they don't react well. Uh, and then you saw some pretty pretty aggressive comments from both the president and the prime minister. The president described Ukraine as a drowning person, sort of mm-hmm. pulling Poland under the water. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a bit of a that's a bit of a misstep for Zelensky. By the way, the last I think you saw something similar in NATO. I remember when Ben Wallace mm-hmm. said that the Ukrainians yes. weren't being sufficiently mm-hmm. grateful. Yeah, 
and like everyone at the time was like, man, what, you can't be saying that. But I think it's, you know, this was a sort of allusion to this problem that's now going to start appearing, which is that that hawkish language doesn't go down so well when perhaps NATO and Western countries don't have the same interest or patience in Ukraine. And like, I don't, again, not endorsing anything there. I think that's just a descriptive fact. Mm-hmm. Um, the other reason I think it's a bit bad for him is that I think there was some hope that having broken through the first line, defensive Russian defensive line, that the second and third defensive lines in Zaporizhia would be worse defended than the first one. Mm-hmm. And so you'd sort of see this sort of snowball effect where the Ukrainians go past the first line and then the second and the third and then they hit Tokmak. And that hasn't happened. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're stuck on the second defensive line. And I think that's, you know, doesn't bode well for Zelensky either. And then the last reason, I'm just this is something that was very much underreported, but yeah. his advisor, Mikhaila Podolyak, a couple of weeks ago, did you see this? Is this the Indian thing? No, so there's a corruption issue. But then mm. he said in an interview that basically said that China in India... The reason I think they're not supporting Ukraine is because they have low IQs or something along those lines. Oh, wow. And I tell you something, that did not go down well on Chinese social media. So yeah, Weibo was, was not happy. Um, yeah, uh, so that's why I think it's been a bit of a rocky, rocky couple of weeks yeah. for Zelensky. Um, the only silver lining, I think, for him, by the way, is that uh, I, th- I think that there's this, there is a bit more of a sense that while some of the Republicans are talking about not writing a blank check. This isn't really news, but I do think actually the Republican Party is sort of, it's not going as vehemently anti-Ukraine as some yes. people expected. And I think that you're seeing their sort of instincts for like power, American power and asserting American power, make sure America wins mm-hmm. coming through a yeah. little bit. Um, so that's what I think mm-hmm. about that. Interesting. Um, my loser of the week, and I came up with this before you did, is exactly the same. And I feel bad for what? pushing oh, um, oh, Zelensky no. down again because now he's underneath even Putin. Yeah. But... It was who I wrote down, so the rules dictate he moves. Exactly the same reasons, really. I think I'm concerned, kind of similar to what you were saying around the rhetoric coming out of Ukraine, the fact it's been less effective recently. It is turning some people off to some extent. Yeah. The sign of Poland as a previously very vehement supporter and a big backer of Ukraine, kind of across the board, not only just with military support, but also diplomatically and persuading other countries and all these things. Yeah. And losing a key figure like that, I think, mm. is important. And I think it... It's almost what you were saying earlier with the um, environmental stuff. Poland moving from not necessarily one side to the other. They're still on Ukraine's side, but their attitude shifting at a time when lots of countries are reevaluating how much money they want to spend. To see someone like Poland make that shift yeah. is a real negative for them. Yeah. And I'm not saying that will mean that the UK or the US will say, OK, we'll do the same. But it will shape thinking and it will cause kind of pause for especially kind of groups that were never that supportive of Ukraine to yeah. begin with. The pressure from those groups is only going to escalate on the back of this. So, yeah, I think it's a concern. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so that's how the board sits. We yeah. have a couple of evil now in these kind of actually good and actually bad categories. Still no one made it to right the bottom or right to the top. Oh, oh, I, I gestured the wrong way around. <laughs> um, right at the bottom or right at the top. Um, but it's interesting. Also interesting that we got a majority in the bottom half, quite a clear majority. Yeah, which I, shouldn't be. I mean, it obviously, is possible because you're allowed to shift. But we're still relatively early in this board's lifespan, so in theory, it should have a real bias towards the middle yeah, still because this is the only is. spots you're allowed to place. How's that happened? Was presumably because we pulled people down disproportionately. We haven't pushed many people up, so therefore we're adding people to this one, but we're also just dragging people down constantly. Okay. But you put one in, one up and one down every time. So surely it should average out. I guess we're adding... I don't know. That is weird. That right? is weird. Something's yeah. gone wrong here. 
Someone do the maths. You're right, eh? <laughs> should ag right? out, yeah. I feel like it should. I think. I think. Unless, it pe- doesn't, unless we disproportionately add people to the bad one and just... Mi- oh, no, that's no, still, that's still should average out. Yeah. Okay. The only one that has warped it is the double down for Modi where I got a vote when I shouldn't have had a yeah. vote and I didn't put anyone up. But besides... Even, oh, I suppose if you do move him up, you probably are about even now. Oh, no, you're still not. You're still one off. Something's gone wrong. It's okay. Tell us what's gone wrong in the comments. Um, uh, like, are, we, are we ending on that? No. No, let's do, let's do something. What are you ending on? <laughs> You've got a big finish, Flair. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been like, I feel like that, that was a, we, should, we should cut that chaos. Oh, well, that's up to the editor. <laughs> okay, so we're finishing on this. <laughs> <laughs> Hard cut there.